This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G. Thanks to the room with the viewers as they trail off into the distance there. And I am Rob Jan. Jan Solo today. Megan McHugh is elsewhere. I'm here and happy, and this is episode number 1162, which is entitled, uh, well, actually, I'll work on the title as they're going along <laughs> today. <laughs> we'll get there. So, we're going to talk about today. Well, uh, we've had a huge hard-charging year this year on Zero-G. There's been so many new films and books and theatrical events and film festivals and, oh, my goodness me, there's been so much, uh, all new content. Occasionally we've stepped back and been able to look at um, a few pieces that have come out before and today, because I've got nothing to talk about from any of the streaming channels or anything at all, I'm good to go on uh, some other material, some older material. And so I'm going to start off with a discussion about um, a film that I've been wanting to see for for ages. Well, actually, middle ages. <laughs> so uh, this one we will get to in presently. So I'll, I'll talk about it um, in general terms, and later on we'll also be having a look at a classic musical which has come out in 3D. It's been out in 3D for a while, actually, but I've only just managed to catch up with it. And uh, I was really fascinated by the fact that it's an old um, anaglyph 3D, you know, uh, red and blue glasses one, and they've updated it to the polarisation system. And I wanted to really see how that stood up in comparison with uh, modern 3D films. And it stands up bloody well. And that will be Kiss Me Kate, the old classic um, Cole Porter musical turned into a film of great repute. And I thought I'd seen that before, but you haven't seen Kiss Me Kate until you've seen it in 3D. All right, okay, so the first film, well, after this year's rather woeful King Arthur, Legend of the Sword and Transformers The Last Night, you'd be justified in asking the question, are there any good Arthurian films out there? Well, um, all art... Arthurian is subjective, but generally people hit upon Excalibur, the screen adaptation of the musical Camelot, and the satirical Monty Python and the Holy Grail as three of the top choices. And any chat about movies about the matter of Britain will also include Knights of the Round Table, Prince Valiant, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, several different versions of that one. Uh, And I actually have, and this is where I often part company with other Arthurian buffs, a soft spot somewhere beyond the tawny field for First Night. 
and indeed even, yeah, the big budget King Arthur movie. As well as left field ones, Dragonheart, and of course the uh, the Disney musical based on T.H. White's The Sword in the Stone. There are a lot of others. Eventually people get around to uh, Robert Bresson's 1974 Lancelot du Lac, which we reviewed earlier this year. And the one I wanted to have a look at today is another classic. It's from 1978. It's a French film directed by Eric Romer, R-O-H-M-E-R, and it's Percival Le Galliard. And it's um, often just known as Percival. Uh, this is a really hard-to-get film, so you're going to have to go on your own little grail quest to find this one. Um, you can start on eBay. There is a... Um, uh, a uh, Criterion Collection, one of this around somewhere. Uh, <laughs> it was just really difficult to track down. Hmm, I'll be able to source it elsewhere. Now, it's um, this particular edition is a single disc DVD from Fox Lorber Films World Classic Cinema Collection. Um, make of that what you will. It runs for 140 minutes. There's not much else on the uh, the disc apart from a few tiny, tiny, tiny little extras. Now, this is um, inspired by Chrétien Dutois' 12th century Arthurian romance, Percival, the story of the Grail, uh, which is a, a major stream of Arthurian-based stories revolving around Percival or Parsifal or... However you want to say it. Now, Eric Romer is the French New Wave director and he was active in films from about 1950 to 2009. But before that, he was a a teacher and a freelance journalist who was writing in uh, film criticism as well. And his family didn't approve of him or, or indeed improve of the entire film world, as it were. And so he came up with a pseudonym. And so his real name was something like Jean-Marie Maurice Scherer. And the pseudonyms based on um, director Eric von Stroheim and writer Sax Roma. And we know Sax Roma, of course, in zero-G terms as being the creator of the Fu Manchu series of novels. Sort of a, um, a variant kind of uh, Moriarty versus Holmes series. In fact, it's said that... Um, Eric Romer's uh, mother died without knowing that he was a film director. <laughs> I don't know if that's apocryphal or not, but um, sail on. So, Mr. Romer had a bunch of films which sort of loosely get grouped together as the six moral tales. And all of those stories were kind of uh, based on the same premise. So, basically, uh, um, a man who gets. Um, He's uh, in a uh, relationship with one particular woman, then he gets lured away by another, only to go back to the first one. Uh, There's um, six films that uh, follow this idea loosely in some cases, but closer in others. The Bakery Girl of Monsu, Suzanne's Career, La Collectionus, My Night at Maud's and... Le Genot declare and love in the afternoon, says he, butchering the French language completely. Uh, those films come out at various times. Some of them actually didn't get theatrical releases until later on. 
But anyway, those that idea I find is kind of taken up in um, Percival. There's uh, some very similar concepts in any of these medieval stories, especially ones which are episodic and based upon courtly chivalric romance, as Percival is. He, later on, Roma, that is, went on to... Um, create uh, Le Marquis d'O, which is uh, based on a Heinrich von Kleist novella, and that was in 1976. And I think that helped set the stylistic template for Parseval. Uh, he was not um, trying to uh, create a film adaptation, but um, he was trying to put on screen what the author himself might have thrown up into the uh, into the silver wings if it he had actually been able to make a film and I, and I think that kind of informs what he's done with um, um, Percival so okay this is um, again uh, Chrétien de Troyes uh, 12th century manuscript and poems um, it's not a, a well received film but I liked it because it really, really does capture a certain type of medieval passion play or story um, as put about by troubadours and strolling players and uh, you know, just that kind of feeling to it. Now, later on, he also did um, uh, Catherine de Helbron, which is another work of a medieval setting. And late in the 2000s, when uh, well, the 2000s, and Rome was in his 80s then, um, he went back to do some more period dramas, uh, Triple Agent and The Lady and the Duke. Uh, uh, Lady is set in the French Revolution. Greetings. This is Mark Alimo. And I play the Cardassian commander, Gold Dukat, on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. You're listening to the Starship Zero-G. Heave to and stand by to be boarded. Here on Zero-G, and today's episode is entitled The Reign of Arthur, which is entirely appropriate to the incredible uh, wasteland-like weather that we've had over the weekend. Our podcast title for today is Kiss Me Pod, for reasons which will become obvious when we talk about Kiss Me Kate later on. Now, Percival Le Galore, or just Percival, Percy for short, well, no, maybe not, is a 1978 French film. And as I was saying before the track, it's uh, based on Chrétien de Troyes' 12th century Arthurian romance Percival, the story of the Grail. Now, rumor has it <laughs> that uh, the cinematographer for this is Nestor Alamendros Cuyar, and this is—he's a Spanish cinematographer by way of Cuba, and uh, he was the um, the favoured collaborator of Eric Roma and also Francois Truffaut, but he had a Hollywood career as well. That's not to say. That trumped that. I mean, no, no, he did the last Metro with Truffaut, but Days of Heaven, um, Sophie's Choice, Blue Lagoon and a few other films were also his meat and potatoes or uh, croissant and breadstick here in this case. Now, the title character, Percival, is played by Fabrice Lucini, who 
I oddly know from another film called um, Asterix and Obelix, God Save Britannia from 2012 where he played um, Julius Caesar and a few of the other actors in this um, particular Arthurian story also went on to do Asterix. I guess it's like kind of like the uh, the French Doctor Who in a way. Um, the character of Sir Gawain is played by André Dussolier, who I know as the narrator of the Amelie movie. And uh, there's a variety of other actors and actresses in this. It's actually a fairly tight cast in in terms of... Um, in terms of that. Now, the big thing that you'll notice if you watch Percival is that it's highly stylized. Uh, and this is, um, this does remind me of a lot of um, Eric Roma's other work as well, but nowhere has he gone to this extent. Uh, there is, it's all shot in a studio. The landscapes are heavily painted or else they're, um, basically just sets, uh, although at one stage they do actually use uh, sand when they're having a, you know, a tournament for obvious reasons, uh, apart from the danger of people falling off their horses in armour and stuff, um, just uh, adds a little kick to the uh, the fighting. Now, this film is largely told by a chorus, rather like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but fear not, it's not as... Um, it's not as evil as uh, Robert Bresson's uh, Lancelot de Luc, <laughs> which has a terrible chorus and these um, obnoxious uh, one-note trumpeting sounds that bray into the uh, soundtrack every now and then. No, this is very melodious. Uh, and, yeah, you could kind of see how this could be sent up by um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, that kind of... Uh, that kind of troubadours wandering around at the time. That's all um, diegetic music, of course. It's all produced in the film, which again is another Eric Roma signature. And I really like the fact that they also produce their sound effects too and they focus on them occasionally, uh, showing the uh, the musicians um, making bird noises, little whistles and uh, and the sound of um, chainmail rustling, which was actually depicted quite well. Usually people just throw in a bit of a clanking sound, which has got nothing to do with chainmail generally, but they actually make it rustle by getting uh, two cymbals, two um, drum kit symbols and um, sort of uh, brushing over them, I, I, I should say. Uh, and that actually does give a really great effect. Oh, and it's real chain mail too, or maily, or however you want to say it. But uh, yeah, close look at it. And um, they've actually got uh, proper metal links. They're not mm, riveted together. Uh, that would probably be going too far for this production. But, uh, you know, maybe they look, they look a little bit even and regular. So they're probably some kind of spring washers just... Um, just buttered together. But nevertheless, it's there and they've done, done it cap a pie, head from toe, head to toe, which is great. You know, I'm looking at it and thinking, yeah, this is very convincing. And it does look very 12th century too, for that matter. Uh, Percival is actually a Welshman. So this is a, a French tale that's set in King Arthur's Britain uh, rather than um, one of the ones which uh, uh, pulls us over to France and gives us um, more of an idea there. But Percival's a, a Welshman and a very... <laughs> a very innocent and naive one to begin with. He is the uh, the last remaining son of a noble house that's um, fallen on hard times after the deaths of uh, two other sons and um, and the husband, uh, all related to the to King Arthur's battles, uh, which is um, why his mother Percival's mum doesn't really want him to go off 
to become a yet another uh, potentially cut short flower of chivalry. Now, Percival has other plans because he runs into some knights who are trying to track down some other knights and fleeing damsels, you know how it goes. And he sees them and he has no idea what knights are. He thinks they're angels and it really puts into his head that he really wants to go off questing and find out who this King Arthur is. And his mother is very upset and um, before she inevitably swoons as he rides off, she gives him some sage advice about how to treat women chivalrously. Advice which apparently is completely garbled in um, Parsifal's simple mind. The first thing he does when he rides off on his um, farm horse, finds a damsel asleep in a building, she wakes up and he abandons his mum's advice completely and forces seven kisses upon her and steals her wedding ring as well. He is actually quite beastly to her. And, of course, when... He rides off and she tells uh, her lord, you know, that revenge will be not long in coming. Except it is actually. It's rather prolonged. It doesn't, uh, he doesn't uh, track Parsifal down until much later in the piece. Um, that's the way the film progresses really, a series of little vignettes as he encounters uh, people here and there. He ends up at King's, King Arthur's court, of course, and it's a great scene in there where he um, um, encounters a, uh, an enemy knight, a, a robber a knight who's stolen a, an artefact from um, Arthur's very court uh, and Percival gets in a fight with him and just dispatches him in such a neatly clinical fashion um, that's quite surprising. Maybe it's just because he got the drop on him and sort of got a, a um, not a sucker punch exactly, but a, uh, a sucker javelin in on him, and that leads to him becoming a fully armoured knight and being knighted by Arthur. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a good little tale, the Parsifal one. I've always enjoyed it, and uh, of course, as you know, if you're a fan of Arthurian literature, there will be a Grail-like object appearing in front of Parsifal, which will cause him a great deal of trouble as he goes on the quest for the Holy Grail and also to atone for the sin of not being actually able to recognise it as the Holy Grail. He is pretty naive, really. Hasn't been um, going to Sunday school, apparently, in the uh, Middle Ages. Uh, There are more beautiful damsels in store for Parsifal to encounter and some fairly hard-fought battles that he'll have to do when he jousts with his opponents. There is a lot of uh, whacking with swords. (laughs) Okay, well, um, the other thing about the film, as I was saying, the film is highly stylized with um, all uh, in-studio sets, all all, uh, really painted in a kind of um, uh, almost a tutti-frutti sort of... (laughs) pastel-toned range and the some of the uh, metallic-looking trees, which I thought quite handily echoed some of the curves in the armour that um, Parsifal and the other knights are wearing, some of those remind me of something that you would see in a Tim Burton film. It's also very painterly too. I enjoyed lots of scenes in this that showed people at work, uh, some armourers in particular, and some women making chainmail as well. Though no, no, they weren't actually knitting it with needles. They were actually using... Uh, pliers and pincers and um, 
that sort of thing. I think uh, at some stage as well, this film becomes very painterly. It's a very romantic sort of style, which makes sense. Uh, and there is a fairly prolonged interlude where we go off to see Sir Gawain fight because at this stage, uh, Parsifal's off trying to find the grail for about five years. Um, it's... um. It's a very intelligent film. Uh, it is very talky, but you do get a few sword fights to relieve the uh, the dialogue with occasionally. And, yeah, it, um, it is very much a Roma film. Uh, you've got the, uh, the whole idea of everything being clean and new and fresh, freshly painted in this case. Uh, it's mostly about young people apart from um, King Arthur. And he doesn't do a lot of... Um, full face close-ups and as well as i mentioned that um there's mostly diegetic music which is uh, built into the narrative of the plot and also you have a lot of people who will stop and say a uh, third person themselves so they'll actually um say and then he said this uh, uh, gawain will actually say sir gawain suffered mightily you know which is very very sweet i thought had a nice little touch in there it is a a special kind of film, this one. Um, it's part passion play, and we actually do get a whole passion play built into it at one stage about Jesus and the crucifixion, um, which kind of throws you back into the uh, the 12th century because it's like you're there and suddenly they've decided to perform a, a play within the film in front of you. So I, I did appreciate that, even old atheist me. I thought that kind of... Um, really set up the whole Holy Grail thing at the end. Now, the film does end quite abruptly, but if you've been following along for all 140 minutes, uh, it does end in a logical place, I thought, uh, because really they're trying to make a a spiritual point with this film. Um, If you ever get a chance to see this one and you're an Arthurian fan, it's well worth a look. It's Eric Romer's Percival. Um, Very hard to get, I've got to say. But, you know... When you say hard to get, it's not like you've got to go off the searching in the forest for five years fighting against the Black Knight and, uh, and other robber barons or anything like that at all. You know, you just got to get online and <laughs> hunt it down. So not really maybe all that difficult, not in the 21st century. Uh, it's actually one that I'd like to see on Blu-ray. I think it would um, stand up quite well on that. So, you know, what can I say? Good armour, well cast, uh, the music's quite pleasant. Um, there's a sense of humour in this. Uh, at one stage, one of the um, the chorus's lines are, they sing a tale we already know. To tell it again would be a bore, so we'll just cut to the chase, basically. <laughs> okay, that's Eric Romer's Percival. Now... This year, more than 2,000 people seeking asylum will spend another holiday season incarcerated in offshore prison camps and Australian detention centres. Men, women and children are separated from their families, living in horrendous conditions. Join the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre to let them know that they are not alone. To sign the open letter and stand in solidarity, visit admyvoice.org.au. A triple R community service announcement. This is China Mieville, author of Perdido Street Station and The Scar, and you're listening to Zero G on 3RRR FM. All right, now, got a very heavyweight book on the desk here. It is Marvel, The Art of Thor Ragnarok. And I was absolutely gobstopped by the design of Taika Waititi's 
magnificent entry in the Thor saga um, when I saw it and wanted to know more about it. This book has just come out in basically 2017 to coincide with the film, of course. It's 328 pages and it's written by Alini Roussos with a foreword by the director himself and cover art by Francisco Ruiz after the late, great Jack Kirby. (laughs) Just having this book is a pleasure in itself. If there's one thing you'd uh, want to take away from the film or... uh, take away it would be one of these marvel art books as is the case with many of the other films okay a few action figures maybe (laughs) or a lot in some cases if we're talking about iron man films but we're not we're talking about a thor movie which only has tony stark lightly waved across it in fact only a suit of his clothes given to uh, bruce banner at one stage uh just opening this book um is an amazing thing. Uh, you've got the um, the big heavy um, case, uh, as, as all the other Marvel books have had, and the um, the actual book slides out of that. Um, the case on the outside is uh, relatively conventional. It has a poster art sort of from the film, so you've got all the characters on that. But the inside cover of the book itself is amazing. It's um, uh, as I said, by Francisco Ruiz after Jack Kirby. So it's got one of these wonderful, cosmically sci-fi 1960s, 70s covers that Jack Kirby used to do of strange, convoluted machines writhing and twisting. And they've managed to uh, print some of it in a more glossy effect so that it shines out like kind of a, one of the machines that... Um, you could imagine uh, Reed Richards putting together in uh, the Marvel Universe, for example. Uh, and, of course, Jack Kirby, the Marvel DC artist as well, uh, did a lot of cosmic science fiction back in the 60s and 70s, uh, as well as being the creator of Captain America, one of the creators in World War II. Uh, Jack Kirby also helped inform the later um, Silver Ages of... Um, uh, science fiction artwork in Marvel and DC and elsewhere too. Uh, so this book does give you a, a very good idea of how much Jack Kirby has informed the artwork of Thor Ragnarok and it's glorious too because as a, as a Kirby fan from way back, um, just to see all of that come to life on the big screen, particularly on the um, uh, the alien battle world of Sakaar, where we see the Grand Master and his exotic citizens in all of their suits and armour and everyday overalls too, but rendered in Jack Kirby style. And the gladiators there too. Uh, there's a lot of uh, My C. Rubio's costumes and design artwork in here, so you can follow the uh, the evolution from the printed um, page of the comic books, as some of these characters have been seen before there, uh, pulled out to work on the uh, 21st century screen. Uh, a lot of costume designs, as I said, uh, for the main villainess, Hela herself, Kate Blanchett, and um, Gladiator Thor and Hulk, um, and also uh, Hulk being informed by the World War Hulk story arc. Um, Surtur the Fire Demon and his flaming sword and pet dragon. Uh, Loki and Hela again with her best headdress, which is an amazing piece of kit, and her lethal self-generated blades, as you saw in the movie. Uh, and Valkyrie, of course. 
Oops, she's supposed to be scrapper number, whatever it is. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of design gone into the simplest things in this film, like the obedience discs on the uh, the gladiator's necks that um, shoot some kind of uh, taser-like charge into them. And, yeah, we do wonder why the God of Thunder would be affected by something like that, but we'll assume that it's not just simple electricity, okay? Uh, but, you know, there's a whole page of artwork for that as they try and grapple with the design of this tiny little detail. There are storyboards of the Hulk versus Thor battle, of course. Uh, a lot about the artefacts in the film, the, the props like um, the, the many weapons that they use in the arena, the uh, the monster skull bed that no doubt Hulk has um, killed himself, uh, which is actually forming uh, Hulk's bed in his um, particular cell. Uh, a lot about the Marvel-lific giant architecture, the spaceships, and of course the um, the merchandise advertising that go with the film too, film posters and so on. There's, a, there's an art to that. Uh, I think one of the pieces I like best in this is a ceiling story painting that they had in um, the, the palace in uh, Asgard on the, on the, on the roof. Um, and there's a nice um, graphic of that whole page one. It's actually quite a, an important plot point too in the film. Uh, very much enjoyed reading this book, um, it really opened it all up for me to see how it all down on the page is. Um, there's oh, just wonderful graphic after graphic of some of the most Kirby-esque characters you can imagine there. And they may actually be doing nothing more than just keeping score for the, uh, the Grand Master or bringing him a, um, a fresh vial of um, eyeshadow or you know, stuff like that. But they're all done in, in glorious detail there and it all comes out in the book. I've got to love these series. Um, they are um, the sort of thing that uh, used to be done for each movie as it came out, not Marvel movies, but before then, uh, you know, the making of kind of books. Um, that is still a thing. They're still being produced at quite expensive now you're talking somewhere about 70 bucks or so on uh where did i get mine from uh comics r us in uh, no not comics r us i got it from uh all-star comics actually in um elizabeth street in the city uh these sort of things you would think are made obsolete by dvd extras but they're not once you see them on the printed page you see the production artwork you go yeah I can see why I want to have this. Ah, <laughs> oh, it's materialism and it's crass, but it's me. <laughs> it's not actually any of those things. It's Marvel, The Art of Thor Ragnarok. It's written by Eleni Russos, 328 pages, and it's a Marvel publication. It's available now, just in time for Christmas too, if you happen to actually like um, Thor Ragnarok. The other actually uh, good one I saw this year was the one uh, about Wonder Woman, a similar, the art of um, the Wonder Woman film. Another beautiful book. This is Danny Strong. I play Jonathan, creator of the internet, international man of mystery, and star of the Matrix trilogy, and Jono the Vampire Slayer. You're listening to 3 R FM radio. Ha! It's one of my better inventions. Yeah, it is, I reckon. All right, so we've had a look at uh, Eric Rober's Percival. We've had a look at a big, thick Marvel book. Now we're going again back into the past to have a look at a film which is simultaneously vintage but also cutting edge because of its uh, processing. This is uh, Kiss Me, Kate, 
and that is the uh, the film version. And it's just, well, not just, but um, it's come out on Blu-ray DVD as a 3D production. And uh, this is originally uh, came out in 1953. And there's quite a bit of backstory, which we will get into right now for this now, the, the Taming of the Shrew, well, it's a Shakespearean comedy, um, somewhere in uh, between 1590 and 1592, they reckon it was written in. And it is, of course, the famous story of the inverted commas courtship of one Petruchio and Caterina. And Caterina is the title character, the Shrew. In this story. And this has been made over many times since it first strutted itself on the boards. And um, one I remember of particular fondness is the 1929 version with Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks in it. And of course, the other really important film version is Franco Zeffirelli's one in 1967, which Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. I have also um, quite a uh, fond regard for the 1980, call it a TV movie, Jonathan Miller's adaptation with um, John Cleese playing Patricio and uh, Sarah Bedell as Catherine. It was a BBC production too. It was part of their uh, their big. Shakespeare saga. It was very important to me, actually, that um, particular lot. That's where I encountered a lot of the plays for the very first time. Okay, now, Kiss Me Kate, with a comma, is a musical written by Samuel and Bella Spiewak, with music and lyrics by Cole Porter in 1948. Did very well on stage, and so in 1953 they turned it into um, a musical. And it's actually... um, An interesting riff upon um, the taming of the shrew. Uh, It involves the production of a musical version of that play. So there's a uh, a play within the movie kind of thing. And um, in this case, uh, we've got um, a guy who is uh, an all-rounder. He's the show's director, the producer and the star... Um, Fred Graham is the character name and his leading lady is his ex-wife Lily Vanessi and so what you've actually got is the players doing the play Um, but it's a little bit different from A Taming of the Shrew because where um, uh, Kate and uh, Petruchio have no idea who each other is in the original play in this one They've actually been married. Uh, actually, it reminds me a little bit more of the dynamic going on between Benedict and Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing than Taming of the Shrew. And it does change things. And that's really what The Taming of the Shrew excels at. Um, this is a story that's been changed and adapted and uh, moulded and interpreted in, in quite a few different ways over the centuries. And we're talking like 400 years. Uh, so it's... One that um, has a a theme, as you can tell from the title, The Taming of the Shrew involves a husband taming his new wife, uh, which is slightly what misogynistic, if you um, really want to put it to to the test. Um, 
to unpack that aspect of it, it would take days and has done. People have written learned treatises on it and uh, PhD dissertions and all sorts of things. And they've put their uh, money where their sonnets are and actually gone out and produced uh, variations. For example, the Taming of the Shroop takes upon a somewhat different slant when you have it performed by all men or all women. Um, you know, and there's other ways that you can change it by altering the setting uh, and making it far more grim than comedic. Because really, some of the things that Petruchio does to Catherine are quite awful. Um, does she give as good as she got? Yeah, but is that entirely the point? Um, and again, I'm not going to unpack this. There's a secondary romance in the Kiss Me Kate musical where you've got Lois Lane, and <laughs> we had a good chuckle over that, who plays Catherine's sister, Bianca, and her uh, boyfriend, Bill, who's a bit of a gambler and has um, a, a habit of signing other people's names to IOUs, and this brings some gangsters into the mix. And what musical wouldn't um, be enlivened by having a gangster? rock up into it. Uh, This is a 1953 MGM musical, so it's lavish and magnificent and kind of actually reminds me a bit of um, um, Percival because uh, everything is heavily stylized again and that actually works well on the the Blu-ray DVD because uh, what you get going on there is, yeah, you get that clarity of uh, a remastered um, movie on DVD and usually it shows up things, but in this case, all it shows you is that it is actually a set, which you already know. So that's a great thing that works with this. It's directed by George Sidney, who has massive cred points in MGM musicals, um, you know, including Zigfield Follies, uh, Showboat, um, uh, Annie Gets Your Gun, and there's an Easter egg in the film. There's a poster of that in the uh, ladies' dressing room. Um, at one stage, uh, also um, other films like um, The Free Musketeers and Scaramouche, so some great uh, swashbucklers he also had a hand in. Got cut his teeth on the Our Gang comedies uh, early on at MGM and went on to do um, Anchors Away and uh, Bye Bye Birdie. Um, had a lot to do with um, Hanna-Barbera animation too uh, at one stage because you remember that he worked with... Um, uh, having uh, Jerry the Mouse appear in um, next to Gene Kelly in Anchors Away. Uh, the screenplay here is uh, by Dorothy Kingsley working upon the um, the musical's book and she, of course, has this massive history and like um, George Sidney also worked with Esther Williams in some of her pictures and, and a lot of the other MGM musicals as well and has a, a huge history as a, a, a fixer of stories for MGM and other studios along the way. Uh, The songs are, of course, all by um, Cole Porter and Hermes Pan choreographed the dance routines, which is a great name for a a dance choreographer, of course. Um, (laughs) uh, It's actually short for um, uh, Hermes Joseph... (laughs) I take a real good breath for this one. Panagiotopoulos... Um, is his full name, so Hermes Pan, it was. It makes entirely good good, uh, mythological sense too. So, okay, to the the 3D of this film, which is is purely amazing. Uh, As I said, it's done originally in the uh, the red-blue anaglyph, which was kind of complicated because it meant they had to um, 
broadcast, uh, sorry, um, uh, screen two prints um, sequenced together the same time so your red and blue glasses would um, would give you the right separation and of course they've redone this for 21st century vision um, with the polarised system so when I was watching it I was watching it using um, powered glasses with the, um, the television at home um, the amazing thing about this 3D is it stands up alongside everything that's been done today, I think at least. Uh, and I was quite excited to watch this. For me, this was um, the first uh, old 3D film that I've actually had a chance to see. Uh, and I hadn't rightly seen Kiss Me Kate until I saw it in 3D because, by gosh, um, it uh, has way more classic coming at their moments than most modern 3D films. Um, which, to be fair, are deliberately pitched to providing more of an immersive window. That's the style now. Um, but it's masterfully shot as that window as well. So you get that too, that uh, magnificent layered effect when you walk into a room. And, and sometimes they'll do it like from uh, the windows of the two different dressing rooms. So you're getting a real sense of space here. And it's also a horizontal and vertical space too. There's a lot of things staged in this that you can see they're deliberately done for the 3D. So you walk around the theatre, which is a good space to do something like that. And you look downstairs and up into gantries and uh, down into orchestra pits and across the audience. Uh, it's all done terribly well and gives you a great sense of space. Even a simple thing like um, uh, at the start of the play, uh, people come up and they throw water at the camera. Uh, there are scarves thrown at you. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, if, if any story revolves around being things chucked about and thrown at you, it's an adaptation of the taming of the shrew. <laughs> so you'd expect that that um, would have some literal impact. And I was actually ducking when I was watching this film and thinking, oh, my God, it's going to hit me. No, well, maybe not quite that. Uh, but it's all good fun, you know, so you've got to reckon that that's how it's going to roll. I thought that uh, that was the thing that really stood out for me. Uh, there's so much more about this film uh, in Cinema Legend. It's um, one of the great MGM musicals, probably one of the most important ones that were done. It's, it's uh, critical in the position amongst the other... Uh, Series. Uh, the cast is just first rate. You've got Catherine Grayson playing um, Kate uh, How and uh, and Lily because of course they're all dual roles. The great Howard Keel playing Fred and Petruchio, and um, we know him from so many other films as well as from Dallas in the nineties. We're in that too. Um, and genre bus will know him as Bill Mason, the uh, the two fisted uh, Trifford. I think he's a merchant seaman, actually, in that one. But in the Day of the Triffids film, not a great adaptation of that, but uh, still, that's where he is with his um, baritone voice. Uh, Anne Miller plays uh, Lois Lane and Bianca. And there's a great turn in this film from Keenan Wynn and uh, James Whitmore, who we know from um, Dr. Strangelove and uh, Them and um, oh, any number of other things. Keenan Wynn was... Um, the assistant in The Great Race, too, Hezekiah. Um, they have a great uh, thing. They're the two uh, gangsters in this and they do a, a terrific musical act in it, too. That's about it for Zero-G today. Coming up next is Astral Glamour with Joe Brunetti. We'll be back to normal next week with Zero-G. <laughs> 
This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.